We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If I ventured in the slipstream. Coming up next on Inside Golf Podcast, a little bit of a different episode this week where I sat down with Joseph Lamagna, who is the writer of the Finding the Edge newsletter. He contributes to the Fried Egg, one of my favorite websites on occasion. And most importantly, he is the founder of Optimal Approach Golf, where he works with PGA Tour pros one-on-one, analyzes their data works on schedule optimization, and a whole bunch of other stuff as well that we'll get into in this conversation. But first, we are, as always, presented by RickRunGoods.com. I know the Tour Championship Week doesn't always draw the largest amount of interest, but both of my articles are already up. Course Preview is up there. DFS article will be up on Wednesday, too. And that Slack channel is, as always, the best place to reach me for any questions. So, Head on over to rickrungood.com, coupon code ANTI, and we'd love to have you as part of the team. All right, that is all I got at the top. Let's talk to Joseph. All right, Joseph Lamagna is here. He is the founder of Optimal Approach Golf. Joseph, I found you a couple weeks ago. I was listening to the Fried Egg recap of the Open Championship, and you were talking about Rory McIlroy's ball flight. And I immediately was like, oh, this is, this is my guy. Um, I'm not the only person in the world that's thinking about this. So I knew right then and there that I had to have you on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be joined by you, man. Thanks, Andy. Well, appreciate you having me. I'm looking forward to it. But I want to give you a chance to give a little bit of a background um, for my listeners. I, we talked a little bit off air. I'm in kind of the betting and DFS space. And you were telling me how that's not really your world. So kind of give give the listeners a little bit of background about what Optimal Approach is and what, what you do exactly. Sure. Well, betting in DFS was my world. So I, <laughs> I feel very comfortable talking in, in that setting. And if this is if that's who 99% of your listeners are, I think we'll all be speaking the same language. My background is in, originally was in the betting side. I mean, I, going back to the time I was a kid, I always was betting on stuff like i was the one handing out march madness brackets in school like (laughs) playing golf for money on our high school team a lot of stories that probably shouldn't be shared on a podcast but got into the betting side realized that golf data wasn't that well understood 
ended up working for 15th club right um, justin ray yeah i think it called i think it's called something different now he wasn't there when i was there okay but they work with team europe at the Ryder cup and then they also work with some players so i'd worked for them while i was in college at the university of texas okay and worked there like five six months ended up after i was done with my stint there started really getting more serious about the database that i had been creating for years um basically cleaned it up to integrate a lot of what i had learned over the years built what i felt was very confident was the best database that players could have access to uh, and i was trying to decide like was i going to get back into the betting side or would i take this to players so that they could use the data ultimately went that route and so basically early 2020 late 2019 took the database to some players they understood why they needed to be using it um, so started adding players as clients who now use the data we do a lot for them so it's not just giving them stats and, and helping them understand where they need to improve but a lot more customization they can do we're tracking a lot more information i don't work personally with matt fitzpatrick but i know that article had come out recently about how he like tracks all all of these right. different data points it, it's that's that's what we're doing for players i can't say their names but um <laughs> so that's the bulk of it uh there's getting them ready for specific courses optimizing their schedules figuring out an off-season plan working with their coaches areas of improvement things like that so that, that's kind of the high level explanation of what optimal approach golf does well i mean that's i know you can't reveal some of the players that uh that you're working with but before we dive into some of the questions that i have for you what was that like kind of being at that crossroads and saying okay i could i have a lot of data here that is very actionable in in some way shape or form and there's probably that kind of intersection where you realize that this data could probably be pretty useful in a gambling or drafting sense. And then also kind of thinking about how it could actually help players on the PGA tour. Was that kind of a difficult decision to make? And, and did you find that players were interested right off the bat about what you had to say, or was it kind of difficult selling them on, Hey, maybe, you know, you're, you might be missing something here with the way you're uh, utilizing your skill set. Yeah. To answer the first question, I wouldn't say it was that difficult of a decision for me to make because I was taking a long view. I knew that if right. I started with this, I'd learn a lot from talking to players and understanding how they view data. If there are certain decisions that I didn't think made sense on the course, like what was going on in their head, and, and maybe that could inform the way I thought about things. So I, I knew it would be a good learning experience, even if it wasn't what I ultimately did long-term. Pretty easy decision. I love professional golf. I wanted to get more into the heads of players. It, it was a, I also didn't want to subject myself to the variance involved in betting. And that's not always the uh, most fun lifestyle. I, I respect those who do it, but I think people understand that the downswings are not for everyone. Um, so it wasn't that hard of a decision in terms of players reception to it. I was told so many times that players were going to be really resistant to this kind of stuff. And that has not been my experience. Frankly, I think a lot of players have had this explained to them in bad ways. And sometimes by people who don't understand the data that well, 
we've always been speaking the same language when I talk to a player and if they're willing to take the call, it's always been, they've always been receptive to it. There are a lot of players who it's not for them, but we'd probably never end up on a phone call anyway. Right. Okay. Well, I want to start with the big one here. I want to start talking about strokes gained. I feel like there's been a little bit of an analytical revolution with golf over the last decade or so that really took shape with the inception of strokes gained. And, you know, in my industry, betting and DraftKings, I'm always trying to figure out whether I'm being like too reliant on them. So I was wondering if you could maybe shed some light on how you use strokes gained, where it fails, what its limitations might be, how it could improve, how it might be improving, and, and what kind of direction you see strokes gain heading in and golf analytics over the next couple of years. Sure. Yeah, there are a few questions in there. So if I don't address <laughs> one of them, you can remind me and I'll, I'll go back into it. So first off, I think strokes gain is important. I give Mark Brody a ton of credit. Absolutely. It's added a lot of context to the game. It's a huge improvement upon a lot of the traditional stats that people looked at before. Uh, you know, that being said, it does have its drawbacks. And I think that's where the conversation will only get more intelligent publicly, like in how people understand its limitations and what it should be used for. I, it's a good way of reflecting performance and saying what happened in the past. You look at a tournament, you want to understand if a player put the lights out and that's the reason he won, which would have been a little bit on the flukier side versus somebody who ball struck their way to a you know, a win by four shots where they only gained two strokes putting over the week. Like that, that's what it's designed for and what it should primarily be used for. And then a lot of people have taken that and tried to make predictions on it. And it has some predictive value, but that's where you really have to be cognizant of its shortcomings. If you're going to get, if it's going to be a central part of models that you're building. One example I like to give people. So, the, the consensus, and I don't disagree, is that strokes gained off the tee is going to be the most predictive stat in terms of the strokes gained categories, right? There's a ton of noise in putting, less noise in strokes gained off the tee. People tend to lean on that pretty heavily. Off the tee, everyone's starting from the same spot, right? That's kind of the idea. Yeah, I mean, that, and I agree. I, I think there's a subtle thing there that you all have the same lie, which isn't true of any other shot. And like, there, there's probably something to that, right. but overall... I think there are a number of reasons why that would be the, the stat that's the most sticky. But here's an example, right? So if you're thinking about Bryson DeChambeau, who one of the longest players on tour, now he really sprays it, but let's, let's say he w isn't that inaccurate. Right. Would you expect him to have better strokes gain off the tee at Kapalua, uh, Tournament of Champions, or at Harbortown? And I, mean, I won't put you on the spot, but... My expectations would be much higher for him at strokes gained off the tee at Kapalua. Right. That in and of itself, as soon as that's true, people can already start to realize like, all right, well, if you're just wrapping everything up into one strokes gained off the tee number, you got to understand that both Kapalua and Harbortown are mixed in there. And so when you, if you build too simplified of a model, that's basically, you know, maybe some weighted average of some different strokes gain categories, and maybe you're weighting towards most recent events like you, you got to understand that the course is wrapped up in those statistics so that's a big part of the limitations that it has there are some really other there's some other really obvious ones doesn't adjust for strength of field 
it's using average baselines everywhere. So the rough is treated the same at every course that can get pretty far off depending on the course you're talking about, like Muirfield village, which has much thicker rough than somewhere like PGA West. So there are a number of limitations it has, but I do think what its core purpose as a better way for fans to contextualize why someone's doing well in a tournament, it is serving that purpose fine, adequately. Do you think that, so for example, I've heard some chatter. I'm trying to remember where I heard this from, but with around the green, for example, it's not really taking to into account some of the nuances of green complexes yet, right? Where certain situations where it's the expected value of where pros should leave a certain chip shot, but there are certain chip shots where pros are aiming 15 feet left of the hole instead of at the hole, right? Oh yeah. But I mean, that's just the, I'd say that's just the beginning of it, right? Like strokes gained around the green. That's that same issue applies to all of the categories. Right. So um, absolutely. If you're trying to make the argument that it's devoid of context, I'm not going to push back at all. That's, that's a huge part of what I do. Do you, do you see that improving? So I think it could. And I, I do think we're probably not that far from seeing either the, probably the PJ tour making some enhancements. The obvious one would be adjusting it for the strength of the field. I think they'll, they'll probably put some pretty basic way of making sure that Sanderson farms isn't weighted the same as the player's championship. Right. Um, wouldn't surprise me to see something like that for them to go full blown, like really build a better system. I'm not sure that's worth their time to, to invest in something like that, but I wouldn't be shocked. Like, we, we could see something like that. Um, yeah, but we'll see, we'll see what happens. I think there are, again, a lot of people out there who know about the shortcomings and maybe aren't going to be as public with their solutions. Right. When you work with players, is this something that they're generally cognizant of? I would imagine that I always wonder about this, about the differences between how players view their game and how statistics relay their game. Do you feel like there is a lot of overlap there in terms of what you are seeing in the numbers versus maybe what their perception of about their strengths and weaknesses are. And you don't have to get into specifics, obviously. Yeah, I don't, I think we probably, I don't want to speak for all of the people out there who work with players and their data. I think we probably look less at strokes gained than other people do maybe than anybody. I think in general, the players, absolutely they're cognizant of the shortcomings of the strokes gain system overall. Yeah, I would say yes. They they're aware of that. And when we start talking about it, I think they're receptive to, to understanding a little bit more about it and what some of the implications of that are. In terms of if their play lines up with the data, I think there are a lot of times overall, yeah, but I've definitely handled a number of requests like, hey, why does the PJ tour say that my strokes gained approach was bad today. I felt like I hit it well. And it's like, well, you hit a shot in the hazard. That's going to drag it down a lot. And then the player might say, yeah, but that shot really wasn't that bad. Like it was only off by six feet and it went in the water. Like, I feel like that's not necessarily reflecting my performance very well. And that's where I would say, look, we agree with you. It is reflecting your performance accurately from a strokes perspective. It may not be that accurate of a reflection of what's coming for you in the future. You might play another hole where there isn't even water there. You can't get negative 1.5 on that shot. So we're speaking the same language here, but it's just sometimes 
how people want to use strokes gained is ultimately what's driving some of that disconnect. Right. And if I had to make a guess, the toughest one is probably putting, right? Because that like the common trope in kind of our industry is that putting is the least predictive and most variable statistic. Do you find that actually act to actually be true or have you found it to be a little bit more predictive than it gets credit for? I mean, I, I definitely think it's the least, it's the hardest to predict. It's so impactful though, that it's worth investing the time and trying to get better about predicting because right. punting can make up an enormous percentage of a player scoring for a week. So I would not agree with the conclusion that it's so random that you just treat every player as if they're the same. And I don't know that's not what you're arguing, but I do think there are people who take it to an extreme of putting so random that they don't invest enough time. Um, yeah, I think that that's one area where I think we, I probably weight putting a little more heavily than a lot of people do, but have made some strides in, in trying to predict it a little bit better and, and maybe bringing in some other information that, that helps to where I can use strokes game putting a little bit more, but no, I don't disagree with what you're saying that, that it's hard to predict. It's really hard to predict. Strokes game putting is very hard to predict. Do you, how much value do you put into certain green types? Do you really believe there's something there with certain players are more comfortable on Bermuda versus POA versus bent grass? Do you think there's, do you think there's anything really there? There's definitely something there. I, mean, I can tell you there's for a fact, there's something there. I mean, I, I look at, I look at grass type as an example. Um, I think there's much less there than people think there is, mm. but it, I mean, it's small, right. And that's partly a function of how random putting is to begin with. So that, that that's already, if you have a stat, that's really hard to predict already, then just changing a small characteristic, like the grass type, isn't going to have an outsized effect, but um, like Sam Burns always gets brought up as somebody who puts really well on Bermuda grass. I think if you actually looked at how different his putting stats are by grass, it's not overly significant, like a few percentage points here or there, but it, you're not talking about like, wow, I expect a half of a shot difference when he's on Bermuda versus when he's on POA. But to that point, I think, I mean, the, if you look by grass type, POA is, is much harder to make putts on than right. something like Bermuda or bent. I think in general, then you get a lot of players who think they're better on Bermuda or bent than they are on POA, but it's like every, everyone feels that way. Right. And so you have to maybe sometimes separate how a player feels about something, their comfort level from what's actually happening. Cause they're all dealing with the same thing. Another like a slight variant. I, I know you didn't ask about this, but like speed of greens, I, right. I can't tell you. I think every player thinks he puts better on fast greens. Like <laughs> that's what I hear from every every single player. It can't be true of all of you, right? It's like the stat that what 75% of people think they're better than the better at driving a car than the median. Like I think that concept applies here. You talked a little bit about how um, part of part of what you do at Optimal Approach is optimizing players' schedules. So I imagine that you think a lot about course fit. When you're thinking about a certain player's skill set um, versus a certain course, what goes into a decision for you to say, hey man, you should maybe check out going to TPC River Highlands this year, or maybe you should check out playing Kapalua this year? Like, What kind of goes into that decision-making process? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the short answer is a model, right, that's going to be outputting expectations for players at different courses. What, <laughs> what goes into that model? I don't know how. I'm not going to give everything that, that I'm, I'm looking at there, but a lot of it's going to be how it sets off sets up off of the tee for players. So, um, you know, if a player's an excellent driver of the golf ball, specifically with driver in his hand, you don't want to send them somewhere where you don't even get to hit driver that often. Right. right? Like that's, uh, that would be an example. And thinking about how players dispersion patterns line up with different holes and what are the most impactful holes? Like that's all the kind of logic that would get wrapped up into that model. But, uh, then there's other things like, what do I expect the strength of field to be and how many FedEx cup points is it giving? And is the player's goal to win the, the FedEx cup or is he more concerned with something else? Like he has family considerations that week. That's, those are real conversations. So I'm pretty on the side of like, Hey, if this FedEx cup systems messed up, like let's exploit it. Like if, if you want to, you want to win, like show up to Pebble beach because it's a good fit for your game and it's going to have a weak field and they're giving out 500 FedEx cup points to first. Like I I'm very on that extreme. Um, but yeah, those are some of the things that are at least in consideration. So for example, like we're at the Wyndham championship this week and I, one of the things I was thinking about when I was doing my breakdown of, of Wyndham was it's not a course where you have a long iron in your hand very often. Right. And Will Zalatoris, for example, is the type of player where in my opinion, it seems you put probably put John Rahm into this category too. There are a couple of players where it seems like they're able to separate themselves to the field the most on courses like Torrey Pines, right? On courses where you have, Torrey Pines is a course where it's basically asking you the same question over and over again, right? Like, can you hit a drive? Well, I see that in your face. I'm not a big Torrey fan either. Um, can you hit a drive long and relatively straight and do you have the ability to hit like a high four iron 220 yards into a relatively flat green like do you think a lot about certain course fits in in that sense like if if you're hypothetically with Will Zalatoris are you are you talking to him about hey this is really where you separate yourself i want you on courses where you have a long iron in your hand as much as possible yeah, absolutely. Those would be the the types of considerations that we'd be making. Just just to point on Tori that <laughs> I, I think a big part of what maybe people don't understand enough about Tori is that like you can miss the fairway by like five yards, or you can miss it by like fifteen twenty yards, and there's very little difference. And that's right. Uh, if you're I John mean, Rom, you could hit it into the Scripps Research Center, and you'll get a free drop. <laughs> I will, what I will say about John Rahm that I think the the ways in which my data is better than a lot of data out there, I, I'm not going to go too deeply into that, but one of the insights that I think people could glean that I'd be willing to say is John Rahm hits the ball so much straighter than I think people realize. Mm. Um, John Rahm is, is, it's him or Cam, Cameron Young is the best driver in the world, in my opinion. I, I don't think it's, I don't think there's anybody else that I'd really be I'm with looking you. at there. So where, where I would, with John Rahm in particular, I want a place where he's going to be able to separate himself where he's hitting driver often and where it's really penal when you, when you miss. So uh, John Rahm's going to make so much money at the, the <laughs> memorial in his life. Like that's, 
that's an amazing spot for him. And when you think about like this might be getting too into the weeds, but nah, I love it. Go there. When you, when you think about like a top player versus a player who's not one of the best players on the PGA tour, like another consideration is how much is skill reflected in the course. So you want to make sure that if you're talking to one of the best players in the world, you're putting them on courses where skill is going to be most reflected. So uh, th- there's a lot that ends up getting baked into a model, but with John Rahm, you, you want to make sure he's on a course that skill is going to get reflected, that hitting an accurate drive is going to be separated from somebody who doesn't like those are, that, those are some more of the specifics that would go into that decision. Right. And I think kind of the inverse of that is let's look at maybe a place like Detroit golf club, where we were last week, where, Detroit Golf Club, I, I talked about this and wrote about this, I and feel free to shoot me down if I was kind of headed down the wrong path on this, but I, when I think about a place, place like, I was thinking a lot about, well, how do we actually define a putting contest, right? That term gets thrown around a lot, but, but what does that actually mean? And to me, it means a putting contest is a place, obviously, first of all, the first thing I think of is a place with high greens and regulation percentage, right? But I think about courses that don't, that are kind of the inverse of what we talked about, right? They don't do the best job of separating elite tee to green play from average tee to green play, right? So at a place like Detroit Golf Club, there's only so much separation that Rom will be able to do from a Kevin Kisner because if Kevin Kisner isn't as behind the eight ball at a course like Detroit Golf Club, if he goes to a course like Torrey Pines, he is really going to pay for a drive that travels 275 yards, not in the fairway, right? The way that John Rom will not pay for it. So would you say that kind of that is, how do you think of putting contests and how, how do you kind of think of the idea of some of these courses are maybe like a Detroit golf club is maybe doesn't do the best job of separating from T to green. Yeah. I- I don't know how much I want to reveal about how I think about a punting contest. <laughs> I agree with you that in general, thinking about it less as putting is more important here and more as like, this is the absence of T to green separation is right. probably a better right. mental framework. I do think there are some characteristics of a course that lend themselves to being a little bit more of a putting contest, but even with that, then you are, you're talking about a statistic being more important that is notoriously hard to predict. So (laughs) in general, I'd almost restructure it as the argument is it's a little bit more of a random result than, Oh my gosh, like go pick all the putters like that. That's probably a pretty subtle distinction to make, but I think it's worth making. Yeah. But people should pay a lot of attention to how separation occurs on a golf course, tee to green. And is it happening in a way that's, predictable or in a way that tends to be a little bit more random, which the clear example here would be something like TPC Sawgrass. So let's, what do you, what do you think is the most predictive course on the PGA tour? I, I, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to give that. And I don't know if I'm going to give that, <laughs> that specific information out, but um, I will say, I think Muirfield village is much more, okay. Is much more predictable than a lot of people seem to think that it is. I, I don't see it as high on other people's lists as it is on mine. Okay, no, I was I was kind of using that to transition. I want I had a couple Augusta questions because that's where I thought you were going to go with that. That I was going to say that Augusta is the most predictable, right? That's I, what people say. 
Uh, yeah, and Augusta, I, I'm not going to disagree. I think Augusta is a different test. And it also just, I don't, to, to answer what's the most predictable relative to other people, I, I'd be doing a lot of inferring about what other people's models look like and how they think of Augusta. You probably have your finger on that pulse much more than I do and <laughs> how people are predicting Augusta. Um, I think there are some ways in which Augusta is very predictable. And there are some other, there are some other ways in which subtle ways that Augusta has some quirks to it that like hole 12 is, is a pretty good example of where you can get some random results. Like that's right. a tricky shot where when the wind is swirling, you just miss by a little bit and you're in the water and you know, Jordan Spieth, I actually had very high expectations for Spieth this year at the masters. Like he blows up on hole 12 as he's done before and he's going home early. Like, I don't, I don't think it's, it, it does not rank number one on my list of most predictive courses. I can tell you that. I kind of feel the same way because I feel like that's the course that everyone, it kind of goes both ways, right? With Augusta, because everyone talks about Augusta is so predictive because of the ground contours and the nuances of the green complexes. But couldn't you make the argument in the reverse, uh, on the reverse side of that argument, that a course with that many ground contours and green complex nuances actually increases variance? Yeah. I mean, part of, I guess part of why I'm even hesitating or struggling to answer the question is I, I guess I didn't, you're more in the DFS. You're having much more of these discussions. That surprises me to hear that everyone views Augusta as the most predictable. I think part of what it has going for it is that there aren't a ton of hazards out there. So right. that's one key way it's different than something like Sawgrass, but I'm with you there. There are some ways in which it's really predictable, there are absolutely some holes out there that I don't view as the most predictable, but there's also, I'm looking at some other things too. For example, like hole 13, you got to be able to hit a draw. Have to. Mm -hmm. So if I know that there's a player out there who really can't do that reliably, like that would be an example of something I'd be adjusting down for. Are other people doing that? I don't know. Like this is a little bit more in your domain of uh, me guessing how predictive I think Augusta is versus how other people view it. I think um, an example of it to relate it back to my world would be you often see popular players like Chalk in DraftKings hit more at a course like Augusta because I think the general public knows more about like, okay, this guy is always good at Augusta. Like an example of this would be Corey Connors was an obvious misprice. He was underpriced and probably what he should be on DraftKings. And he was very, very highly owned. And everyone at that course was like, you know what? Corey Connors has been great here. He's a really good fit for this course. We're just going to play Corey Connors and Corey Connors plays well. The inverse example of that would be Sung J.M. was really, really, this is perception, right? Mispriced at the U.S. Open, right? He was was the same. He was the Corey Connors of the U.S. Open. And everyone's saying, Oh, Sung Jae is so underpriced. And based on the players that were around him for skill level, he was. But of course, then he goes into the US Open, a course like Brookline, that I think people in my world have a little bit less information about. And he ends up missing the cut. So I think one part that we haven't hit on that I'd be remiss to not mention is wind. Like wind is a huge part of predicting golf. And if I had to guess, I don't want to speak for your listeners. I'm, I'm guessing that people don't take enough account of wind. So I think that's also a part of why Augusta could be 
more predictive in general is that it's not not a place where you're going to get a ton of wind generally generally speaking right whereas at brookline like you could be on the bad side of split you could get a gust when you're playing you know a long hole into the wind like anytime there's wind on the golf course it's going to inject variance into the tournament and you don't usually have a lot of wind at augusta so that's definitely worth calling out is there a way i mean how do you even really go about factoring in wind that but like do you buy into the idea of good and bad wind player like i'll give you an example of this here's another like buzzy trope in in kind of my world Joaquin Neiman is a good wind player because he's really good at flighting his golf ball and he hits a low ball flight. Is that the type of thing that you are thinking about looking at? Because part of me says, yeah, I noticed that when I watched Joaquin Neiman, but I also think that more players probably could hit the ball lower if they wanted to and they choose not to. Or it's so, selective, yes, it's, I guess. It's, it's definitely something that I look at, um, I think a good example would be like 17 at Sawgrass this year. If you saw the the graphic of how guys played on that hole by their ball flight, they showed on the, after the day that it was super windy that Saturday, like there's an advantage to being, being able to hit the ball low into the wind, but still with wind, you have to appreciate how much variance there is. And the part that I think is generally missing from the discussion is a huge part of why it's why it injects so much variance is wind is not the same for everybody. You you play different holes at different times. You may just get unlucky about when you're playing a particular hole into the wind or like hard left to right wind with a hazard in a certain place that well that Augusta is the perfect with the swirling winds is the perfect right, example. Right. So you you could be a really good wind player and you still have to build in that uncertainty. Like this guy doesn't get to pick when he's playing particular holes. So um yeah I care about one area I want to get a little bit better in understanding is like, yeah, how significant is being able to hit a draw in the wind? I'm working on that. Um, right. Like, should you expect a Tommy Fleetwood who, who's able to hit a controlled draw to, to what is the, to what extent can you attribute his ability to hitting a draw to be contributing to outperformance in the wind is sort of the, the central question there. But um, yeah, it's wind is a tough one, but definitely worth paying attention to also with that for the DFS people out there. If you think you can find a window where it's, this is always just grouped into who is the early tea times, who is the late tea times. It's more complicated than that, right? Like there are certain times of the day that you might want to have the latest tea time because playing at seven o'clock is going to be really easy. So absolutely be looking at that, not just early, late. Yeah. You know, that, that is, um, Yeah, I, I, I think our understanding of the wind is is kind of limited at best, but it is continue it is becoming more of a narrative and at least in DraftKings in the sense that we've seen a lot of these tournaments recently, whether it be Southern Hills, TPC Sawgrass, um, where there even last week at Rocket Mortgage, there was almost a two stroke advantage based on um the splits. Um I want to ask a little bit more about ball flight because that was actually how I first kind of got introduced to you was you were talking about Rory McIlroy's ball flight at St. Andrews. Um, That is something that I would say is not really a conversation point at all in the DraftKings and betting industry. Talk talk a little bit more about why you look at 
ball flight and why you think it might be important. Sure. Yeah. And and I think there are a couple of reasons why that could be absent from the conversation. One is that there's no there's no data availability, right? Like you don't know, you have no idea what, what players are doing out there. A guy could hit a cut 95% of the time. Then he tries to hit a draw. It's not televised. You can't, you can't see that anywhere. Right. So you're, you're obviously just going to be limited in how much of a discussion you can have about it. Um, I have always felt with Rory McElroy, very confident. He tries to do mu- too much with the ball in the air, like just for years now, um, <laughs> seems really obvious to me i think people who are more analytically minded maybe have more of like an engineering background think about how can you do things systematically i don't think they have a hard time with this argument i think they're generally pretty receptive to it Uh, but at st andrews when there's no wind you just have to like you've got to be taking some straight lines like you (laughs) there was one shot in particular believe it was his friday round hole eight par three where there's almost no wind and rory tries to hit like a 30 yard draw you just cannot convince me that if he were to hit that shot ten thousand times his best outcomes are going to be from trying to swing a ball 30 yards like his feet were pointed to the right like i've just seen this with rory so many times and i always screenshot it like (laughs) watch what happens when he turns his feet 30 yards from the target like what are the chances that that is the optimal shot right you're hitting Generally, I mean, the ball is traveling a farther distance when you curve it like that. You're probably going to have to hit more club. Do you really think, Rory, that hitting a 30-yard draw with a 7-iron is going to give you a better outcome than hitting a baby draw with an 8-iron that lands softer? Like, I I am so high conviction about this that even without (laughs) seeing Rory's data, like, I I know it's true. So I I cringe every time I see Rory getting ready to do something, you know, (laughs) aiming 30 yards off of his target. I think he would have won that golf tournament if he took a different strategy. He did it all over St. Andrews. This wasn't like one shot. Does that explain what happened on 18? Because I I was completely flabbergasted by how short he came up on 18 on the final ball. To be honest, 18, like at that point, I don't know if I could even picture. Did he try to hit it? I think he tried to hit a pretty big cut there. Uh, Yeah, he came up 20 yards short. Right, right. So I would say yes, but I like the damage was done at that point, right? I, I didn't even really pay that close of attention to what he was trying to do off the tee. I mean, he had what, what percentage chance of eagling that hole? I mean, tiny, but, uh, there were two drivable par fours throughout the day that absolutely that came into play. It was both nine and 12. He tried to peel the ball a significant amount, right? He ends up leaving himself like 60 yards on one of the chips. Like that's just not the way to play golf when there's no wind. Uh, another example, really subtle, was his approach shot into 14, the par five. Tried to hit a pretty big draw into there, left himself in a bad spot. Cam Smith was like 30 yards back from Rory off the tee on that hole. Hits this like incredible like stock draw that goes over the back of the green into a perfect spot. Like, Really, is it that big of a leap to make that when you're hitting a lot of stock shots and no wind, that's going to give you a better outcome? Like, I, I don't think this is rocket science. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. With everyone fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy, with Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketplace platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. It's okay if you don't know much about marketing. Constant Contact's writing assistant tools and automation features help you craft messaging and say the right things at the right time. I use this to help write and send my email newsletters, and you should too. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Now that we're on St. Andrews, I, I want to ask you one or two more questions about St. Andrews. So yeah. first question, I'll ask you this first. Um, when you are, when we have a course like St. Andrews, when we have a major championship course, um, any of the majors or any new course on the PGA tour, what does your preparation look like for a course that we have limited data on versus, um, cause I think St. Andrews surprised a lot of people in the way that it played. And, and we, I, our, the second part is we'll kind of talk about maybe why that is and what you would change about St. Andrews to continue to have opens there. But when you are, when you are preparing a player for a course, maybe like a major championship that is not like Augusta is not even like a TPC Scottsdale or a TPC Sawgrass. Like what do you, what are kind of the things that, what does that preparation look like a little bit? Of course, what you feel comfortable disclosing. Yeah. To be honest, it's not that different because I think if you are rigorously testing PGA tour data, you already know that even if there's been four events at a course, that's really not that much data to be right. drawing too many conclusions from. So my process is always thinking about the characteristics of a golf course and how that will reflect skill in different areas. If you were to play the course out 10,000 times, like that's how you should be thinking about it. Like, do I understand characteristics of golf courses that lead to these skill sets being reflected? Not just let me run, let me back test the last seven years of data at this course. That's not that much data. So it, it doesn't look that different. I mean, we're looking at a number of things, like how does a player's dispersion pattern fit different holes and what's the right club off the tee? Um, how penal is it to miss in certain areas? How does that inform the targets that you're taking? If there's a drivable par four, I'm going to be putting a lot of thought into that. I think a really interesting one is next year, uh, the US Open at LACC. There's going to be a really interesting drivable par four that I'm already thinking about. Or so, five, five, five. Yeah. I've, yeah, I think five. it's six. I think they have back. Six? I, I'm very curious about how they're going to set it up because they have two holes on the front nine. It's either four and five or five and six. It actually both could be drivable. I don't know if we're, are we thinking about, so I think it's number six that's drivable, which seven's the par three. Are you saying that five oh, is a long par so, four? 
Okay, so so seven seven they play as a short par four, I think sometimes for that's interchangeable. I know for members at least. Yeah, seven's a, seven's a long par three, correct? Yeah, yeah. I think it was. Man, I I, I did play it earlier this year, but I, I don't know if I could tell you how long that hole was. But I think it was like maybe 190 yards. Oh, uh, I think it. I'm. We might be thinking of different things. I you you've played it more recently than I have. I'll, I'll go Sorry, back and yeah. look. No, <laughs> still early in my preparation. We got you're starting to stress me out because now I'm I'm thinking I've got less time than I than I thought I did. So back to St Andrews for a second. Um, did it did it surprise you at all about uh, what players were able to do to that course and kind of be able to maybe take some of the strategic value out of that course a little bit and and. Do you think that it is a course that um, we should continue to go back to, and you really enjoy, you are still able to enjoy from a strategic standpoint? Yeah, I think if you can't go back to St Andrews, then you've lost the sport. Like that—that's how I feel. I'm—I don't know how the listeners feel. I'm very pro rollback. Like I think it needs to happen, and then you'd be even more able to go to somewhere like St Andrews. But even if you didn't roll the ball, roll the ball back, or do something with equipment, you can still go there. I thought this year was awesome to watch, even though there was no wind. And anytime there's wind, it's going to lengthen the golf course. It's going to be a much more interesting test. So I was not surprised at what players were able to do with it as soon as we saw that there was going to be no wind. But when there's a lot of wind, it still has strategic value. That's actually like not the most... It's a pretty straightforward course off the tee, but it's a good test off of the tee. There's some... Like 18... 18 is not that interesting, right? I, I think there are a number of holes out there that have lost their strategic value with the modern game, but I'd like to see players keep going back there. We just need wind. I just put up LACC, by the way, while you were talking. Six is a drivable par four. Seven, which I was thinking of, is a 242-yard par three. Okay. And for some reason, I had that in my head as that maybe played it might have been they played hey, i don't know how far you hit the ball i'm not judging you that, that might no. be a par four for you <laughs> i think um i think they uh they switched up those holes a little bit with the setup with the walker cup is what i'm thinking about because you Could have be. yeah um all right couple couple quick questions for you before we get us out of here give me a guy that you think is underrated that you're oh, maybe man. seeing, you're maybe seeing something in the data that you just think this guy's really good. Yeah, that's all. I, I should be more prepared for that question because I do, I get it quite a bit, and then I have to start thinking about, well, what, do, how do other people feel about certain players? Like, I, like Brendan Steele. I was looking at some data earlier today, I and mean, he's playing incredible golf. I'm guessing the DFS world's all over him based on what I'm. Yeah, what I was looking he, at. He today, was like thirty so. percent a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and he's I mean, his data is pretty nuts. Right now, it's really good. It's funny you ask because I actually had seen a lot in Henrik Stenson's data that looks really good. So uh, I'd put out like before the Open Championship, I thought Stenson could have a good week. And then he like bogeyed two of his last four, I think, to miss the cut. And then he wins the live event. So I've seen some. Is any chance live was rigged? Like, how does Stenson go from playing badly to winning? Like, he's been playing pretty well. So, that, <laughs> but he's less relevant. He's not on the tour now. I'm trying to think of who would be a good name to give you. I think. I think an interesting name is Hayden Buckley, hmm. who hasn't had like an incredible year. He did pop up uh, during the U.S. Open. The 
What's interesting about Buckley is he hits the ball dead straight. Like we're talking like he he could be the most accurate player on tour for years. He hasn't done a whole lot with it, so there's there's some work that has to go on, but you don't see somebody hitting that the ball that straight that consistently. It's it's jarring to look at some of his data. So I think if you get to a particular golf course that's going to emphasize accuracy off the tee it's not going to be a shock if he's up there um but like he still has some development that needs to happen in his game but he's a rookie and i'm sure he'll come along so that's that's something to pay attention to that's more of a specific skill set to, to look at with somebody as opposed to uh, me saying like he's going to do well in this upcoming playoffs or something like that but i think that's a really interesting name i'd like to see him add some distance i'm a big proponent of players adding distance but i think if Hayden, I mean, Hayden Buckley, if you could put on like five to eight yards a distance, you're looking at a top 10 to 15 driver of the golf ball in the world. He kind of looks like a Billy Horschel off the tee right now. Interesting. What's a course that you think is a little bit underrated on tour? Oof, underrated in terms of like how it tests the pros or just as a golf course? Um, that you enjoy, that you enjoy watching going to that you think maybe there's a oh. there's there's a little bit more something there yeah maybe i'll maybe i'll get killed for i, I don't hate san antonio i think a lot of people hate san antonio <laughs> part i guess part of why i like it is it's a really good place to watch golf so you get to see these guys up really close and it has a pretty good field and not a lot of fans so i think yeah, that's, you're, te- that, you're a texas guy yeah yeah i think that might be coloring my opinion here a little bit it's not the most interesting golf course but there are actually some pretty interesting holes out there it's generally pretty firm it's not one that's like at the top of my list to go play myself but um i don't think it's that bad and it kind of has some interesting characteristics from like somebody who likes to predict golf so i have a i guess a soft spot in my heart for san antonio i'm not sure i want that one i want that to be my answer I mean, not it's not going to be Bay Hill or Tory. That's for damn sure. <laughs> I don't like those ones either. I mean, I love, I like Wild I like Sony. I think Seth that's Rainer. fun. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I I think that's a fun course to watch. And you haven't, well, they could do better on this. And they're getting rid of the fall series eventually. But you usually haven't watched a ton of golf leading up to it, so it's a pretty refreshing way to start the year. You get Kapalua, then you get Sony. So I like the way Sony tests players to an extent, but that's another course that modern technology has kind of rendered uh, certainly to have a lot less strategic value. I'm going to fit this. What's yours? Well, I, I always enjoy TPC Scottsdale. I don't, I I think that TPC Scottsdale does a really good job of, I think 16 is like a really good drivable par four. I don't think it's going to be found. I don't think that this course is, is going to be found in any golf digest top 100 rankings. But I think that in terms of testing the pros, this is a course that always seems to deliver. And I'm always entertained about the variance of outcomes on that course down the stretch. It always feels like something can happen. Like somebody can make a charge, like somebody could screw up. Right. So I probably say TPC, is that accurate? Is that a fair rendering of TPC Scottsdale? You seem a little more hesitant. I don't love I don't love Scottsdale, but I don't like we're we're splitting hairs here. I'm not going to nitpick a course that you like to watch for one reason or the other. I, I think that there are some qualities of that course that I'm not particularly fond of. But like what? I'm curious. I don't think the 
I don't think the approach shots are overly demanding in, in mm. an interesting way. Um, that course is a lot about like just not spraying your tee shot. That's kind of right. how you can get into trouble out there. Probably a little bit of an underrated element of that course that like really wide misses are not like you will get yourself into some trouble out there. Um, I don't know. I think a lot of the holes are kind of repetitive. I think if you played it, if somebody played it for the first time, six months later, they'd probably have a hard time recalling what some of those holes are like, especially on the front nine. I, I'm not a huge fan, but again, I'm not a huge fan. Of a lot of the courses they play on tour. Me so that, that's not like, I don't, I don't want to be coming across too harsh on your answer. That's why it was hard for me to think of one that I really like. Cause even something like Sony that I have an affinity for, it's not really as great of a test for PGA tour pros as I'd like to see. Um, with designers, do you do you think that I'll give you another? Okay, get this is this is a good one because I I think part of the fun part about this is you kind of poking through some of the some holes and some of the narratives that are have become narratives for oh, some yeah. reason in this industry. But like Pete Dye courses. Oh yeah, I, I figured you Siwoo Kim at Pete Dye courses or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, I'm not that that's I think that goes. I hope I'm not offending anyone, but I think that goes in the the category of like fake analytics. Like <laughs> if Pete Dye designed a golf course that looked nothing like TPC Sawgrass or something, you expect Sue Kim to play that well there? Like what? Cause whose name like that, that, that just doesn't, that doesn't hold any water for me. That's funny. How, how I, many, uh, what percentage of people am I upsetting by saying that? A few, but I mean, I, I, I've, I've always felt that way too, where it's like, dude, I mean, look at the skill set required to compete at whistling straights versus look at the skill set required at Harbortown. A lot of people are just checking the Pete Dye box and like you could put on, you could put on designer filters on a lot of, on a lot of data websites. And it's like, well, I don't understand why you would ever want to group whistling straights and Harbortown together in any capacity ever. Yeah. Look, uh, it's hard for me to even unpack I don't like that at all. So uh, a lot of narrative type stuff. I'm not as on board, right? Like as soon as someone starts talking about, they like a certain player to be the first round leader because they do well in opening rounds or something like that. That's not the way I think about data. Um, okay. Let me give you, cause now, now you got me thinking about it. poke a hole through proximity buckets real quick. Yeah, again, and I'll give, I'll give people some slack on something like that. Cause it's like, what, what data do you, Have, what else are you going to yeah. look at? Right. So like that, that's, I don't want to be overly critical. I think just the main thing to keep in mind with proximity is that uh, th this is not expected values are nonlinear. So um, if you hit a shot to two feet and then you hit one to 36 feet, call it right. So your average proximity is 19 feet. If you hit two shots to 19 feet, you're going to score much worse than in that first situation I just described. So uh, just, just anytime you're looking at proximity, I have less of a problem, I guess, with it as a stat than like over, as a graph over, <laughs> over a large sample size, maybe like I think over, like it, it's interesting because if you look at somebody's short term proximity, like last 30 rounds, last 25 rounds, like 
you will see a play you will see many players that are like first on the PGA tour over their last 30 rounds in proximity from 100 to 125 yards and 150th from 125 to 150 and it's like dude there's no way that this guy is that much better with a pitching wedge than he is a 9 iron yeah, but yeah. if you go 100 rounds it starts to even out at least a little bit yeah i mean look i always having a bigger sample size is going to be good and I'm, I'm generally looking at things longer term than a lot of other people are i don't have like a huge it's not something i would really ever be looking, looking at, at too heavily so it's hard for me to nitpick it like you just ha- you have to think about some of these stats from the perspective of like let's say a golfer goes to a, a course where short-siding yourself isn't a problem at all and it's going to be more aggressive and then goes to a place where he knows he's going to be have to be conservative like that can affect the proximity just based on strategy it's not that's not a reflection of he hit his wedge better one week than the other so like you just have to think about some of this stuff and how it kind of plays into the data right like what if what if you go to st andrews and it's really windy and you catch the bad side of a draw and it skews your proximity from a particular distance like you got to think about how you're dealing with that last question i want to get you out of here on um, so if you are, if you were going back in time and you were, you took the betting and DFS road instead of the player management road, what's one piece of advice that you think you would, you would give to people in terms of their modeling? The one thing that I kind of take, took away from hearing you talk was like, maybe actually just, and I, I do this, but I probably don't spend enough time on it is instead of looking at like the data page for a course, try going hole by hole and actually visualizing what the outcomes look like. And I would highly, highly doubt that anybody is going through hole by hole and actually trying to conceptually visualize what's going on there versus just like looking at a tournament stats page. Oh, that, yeah. That's, that's kind of surprising for me to hear because that would be a huge part of what I'd be doing. I'd be looking hole by hole. I'm glad you asked what advice would be because i've never at least on a pod or anything talked about this but i kind of have a a canned answer here that i like which is pick one golfer one golfer who has maybe a little bit of a different skill set like you can kind of do whatever you want here pick a golfer that is amazing chipping or like i'd probably go with something simpler like he's really long off the tee but he doesn't hit it accurately taylor pendrith is a good one taylor pendrith hits the ball a mile and he's got to clean up some other aspects sure pick somebody like that really follow their game and learn them and and try to understand like not just which courses does he do well on but like what are the types of holes he does well on like what gives him issues like really pay attention to that and if you can which you can't hopefully people have the resources to do this like try to get out to a, a pj tour event over the next couple of years and then go follow the player for a round and actually see your hypotheses in action it's a it's a revealing process. I know that's not the smallest ask to like actually go out and travel. Right. But if you can do that, or if he's in a featured group sometime and you get to watch all of his holes, like you're going to learn a lot and it's going to have a lot of benefits beyond just understanding one player's game. You're going to be able to translate those insights into any other player's games, or at least a high percentage of players on tour. So go, I would do that and, and don't settle for he does well in this course, go hole by hole, figure out, what is it about this particular hole that's giving him a problem? You, I know, I've, 
I feel like you're, are you Austin or San Antonio? Cause I feel like, I, I feel like you're kind of saying it, but not saying it. Maybe you're not as much of a fan as, uh, as the match play course. No, no, no. I'm a huge fan. I live in Austin. I'm a huge fan of Del Match Play. Okay. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the course. I'm not, I'm not as big a fan of the event, but I'm a, I'm a big fan of the course. Do you go out to that one every year? Yeah, yeah. I get to most. I get to a lot of events every year. Really? But th- that one, I, I do not miss that one. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, Joseph Lamania, what do you have to plug? Your news, your newsletter. Talk about, talk about maybe some of the stuff of, about other ways that people can find you. Sure. Yeah. I'm, Twitter's probably the best spot. So you can find me at Joseph Lamagna, L-A-M-A-G-N-A. How you spell my last name? Beyond that, the newsletter I write—it's free. It's findingtheedge.substack.com. I try—I try not to do only golf. I, I think it's become like eighty percent golf, but I, I make an effort on there to to bring in some other sports and tie the together with with golf concepts. So that I'd say most of the audience is there for golf, but I actually think by covering some other sports and tying it back to golf, people can learn a lot. So. Um, I put a lot of time into it. I'd be happy to have more readers. And then if people want to share different, like if you see a research paper and you think it's interesting and you want to send it to me or you've done your own research and you want to uh, you hope it makes it into the newsletter or something, I'm always, I'm always looking for up and coming analysis. So you were, you uh, I, I saw you retweet something that I've been on too. I was talking about this on, on a podcast a month ago about how the, the, this is a completely different from what we've been talking about, about the, how the Kushner thing is just complete. No one, no one wants to touch that one. Yeah. It's lame. It's weak. I, I've had a lot of people in media tell me that they're not, they can't touch it because a lot of golf fans are Trump fans. And I, it, it's so weak to me that you can't even talk about it without upsetting people that uh, that will not be me. So I'm not even being like critical one way or the other. You, you just no, got to report on it. It's huge. It's a huge story. It's so massive. If you, if you can't read that without $2 billion uh, to affinity partners, <laughs> If you can't read any content about it without like your eyes bleeding, then don't follow me on Twitter. I, I don't want to deal with some of those replies. So, I take it you're not a you're not a huge Lev fan so far in terms of the golf product. Let's talk about the golf. Sure, I, my position on Live, I think, is pretty. I think it's reasonable and pretty simple. I, sure, the money, the money, the source of the money, like that's a that's a whole topic. Right. Frankly, I'm a little bit more here for the what about is and talk than some people seem. To want to dismiss like you did we just have to be realistic about how the world works right the golf product itself right now i think is awful and, and the format in particular i think is bad and does need to change and probably will change and the official world golf rankings implications are, are really big right now they're in a bad spot they've built an isolated system and if you know about how owgr works and how mobility in the golf ecosystem is important. Like, you know that they have an uphill battle, especially locking some of these guys into three, four year contracts. So um, I, I believe that ultimately the best product in golf will win. And if it's live, it's live. Like if, if they figure some stuff out, fine. Right. Like we'll win then because it'll, they'll be putting on a good product. It's not there yet. I don't think the golf is compelling, but again, a lot of PJ tour golf isn't compelling. So I think I'm, trying to call it out on both sides and how ways in which the PGA tour can improve and obstacles that live has. Right. Well, you could have, uh, you kind of saw the Henrik thing coming. No one else saw that coming from, I think he's missed like 15 out of his 20 last 20 cuts on the PGA tour since the start of 2021 or something. He, he's like actually that. been playing pretty well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Henrik Stenson's been playing pretty well. 
Um, all right, Joseph, it was a blast. We will do this again soon. And thanks for coming on, my man. Appreciate you having me. All right, that is it for the podcast. Special thanks to Joseph Lamagna. Special thanks to RickRunGoods.com. No golf tournament next week. We will have an episode, however, where I will be breaking down NFL futures with one of the smartest NFL minds that I know. He's a professional handicapper and a good friend of mine. So if you are at all an NFL fan in any way, if you bet the NFL, I really think you'll enjoy that one. Until then, best of luck with your bets this week at the Tour Championship, and we'll see you next time. Cheers. If I ventured in the slipstream Between the viaducts of your dream Where my world still runs crack And the dead center back road stop Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.